0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Must Men's Podcast. We are here with guest interview number eleven. 11. Um, we are joined by our first female guest, the the myth, the, the mighty um, Amelia Thompson, PhD. That's the important bit right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's uh, she's come on to talk about some pretty cool stuff today. Um, before we get stuck into that, let Amelia introduce herself and. Uh, she, she is not willing to do droppers, so she's already dropped. It's shocking.
1: But, um, um, I'm not going to say.
0: How are you doing, Amelia? Hi.
1: Uh,
2: that was the briefest introduction I've ever had. It was like, this is Amelia, and now she's just going to talk about herself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know more about yourself than we do. Fair.
2: Um, yeah, I'm, oh. I'm a nutrition consultant. And I work predominantly with people with disordered eating, um, and also not all of them, but I'd say maybe eighty percent of my clients are disordered eating clients, um, and or bikini athletes um, who are potentially overcoming disordered eating um, as a result of competing, and the lifestyles around it really. So I work mostly online, as you know.
3: When when did that when did that start to tail more towards the ed type profile of client like or the, the two go hand in hand to an extent don't they
2: yeah um to be honest it kind of just picked up because i went through some things myself as a competitor right. um, and from my own personal experience i realized that there was nobody nobody vocalized it at all nobody mm. spoke about it more so nowadays everyone like you know we're sitting here talking about it now but I started competing four or five years ago, and and it was this big secret. Um, the coaches around at the time didn't care; um, they didn't talk about it. So, I kind of just fell into it because it was something I was interested in, and I had a, a I'm a registered nutritionist, so I have the like I have the qualifications and experience to look into it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so I have that capacity to do it, and so I kind of just fell into it through personal interest, and then because of a lot of like, what I talk about on my social media and a lot of the writing that I do, um, those types of clients just started to gravitate towards me, and then it, it just kind of grew from that. Mm.
3: I think it's really cool. Like, I, I guarantee you every single coach listening to this now can say off the top of their head multiple clients that they've either currently worked with or have worked with in the past that suffer from a lot of psychological issues with food, so it's all around us, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and there's not enough support for it. There's the, you know, you get the medical support for clinical eating disorders. um, And then but if you're somewhere in the middle, especially if you're a competitor, because it's very much looked at, as we know from the outside, as you're choosing to do this, just stop doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, There isn't support for it. And so as much as you can say, you know, medical disorders are outside of our realm. If we don't do that, then nobody helps these people and nobody supports it. So we have a responsibility to an extent to, if we can, to support it. Mm.
1: Is that Amazing. why you
0: it doctor qualifications so you can do that? <laughs>
2: <Absolutely>. <laughs> that was the reason why.
0: <laughs> no. No, I think it's cool. And I think like the stuff you post is pretty like eye-opening and there's going to be so many people out there. I think the, the, the astounding thing is how many people out there that have eating disorders and don't actually realise and they think it's pretty normal. I was
1: talking to a client
0: who's, who's who had a client himself who, and that client believed their eating was totally normal, but it was like so hideously disordered. But for them, and they and they had loads of barriers up, on it you know against kind of dealing with it because it had become normal to them, and it is you know it's pretty shocking, and uh, yeah, I think it's uh, the stuff you post is very very valuable, and people out there who coach. In a- at any level with any kind of population will benefit from reading what you have to say um, because it's very valuable but I think I've said that like three times
1: <laughs>
0: I, I think- can up the introduction I said valuable like three times in the
2: it's
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> as well though there's like research that says that like half of our population are in at any one point mm. um, so even if even if we don't have disordered eating, we've got 50% of the population that's dieting. And it's something like half of them then become pathological dieters and then another half of them are then developed into clinical eating disorders. So it's a huge, um, there's a huge proportion of our population that are either undergoing some sort of ridiculous diet and strategies without support or then developing into disordered eating and or eating disorders. So it's, it's huge. And it's just, it just amazes me that there's just not, that much support for it. Like clinical, there is of course, but that kind of midway point.
0: Hmm. Is it, do, you, do you have any statistics for that number? Like,
2: I, think, that, I, I think I do, give me a second, because I actually did, I've, I have looked at this and I have written it down before.
1: Um,
2: I don't know what the paper is. It's 35% of normal dieters become pathological dieters and then 20 to 25% progress to partial or full eating disorders. So yeah, I was pretty much on track with my numbers. Thanks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's
0: that's pretty bad. That's crazy. Yeah, Yeah. it's a lot. And it's it's amazing, like the amount of people that will start out on this journey with, like, you know, probably with quite a normal way of eating. Mm. It just transcends into this, you know, very very disordered way of eating. But yeah, yeah, Jesus. But then,
2: but then athletes and well bodybuilding gets the blame and it's nothing to do with bodybuilding it's to do with extreme restriction and it's easy and there's this kind of trend for for people to blame the sport for it and it's not the sport it's people with underlying issues to start with usually um that are then obviously exacerbated by the, the lifestyle that it requires
0: mm. i'm glad you said that because i see there's so many of those those diet fans out there you know those diet protocols that the you know people get pushed on all the time because it helps them lose weight these you know middle aged women that jump on jump on them and stuff like that, and they, the amount of eating disorders that come from those is astounding, and that's not yeah. even related in any way to being in the gym most of the time it's just eating, you know restricting foods completely unnecessarily not like I, I was tagged in one the other day um, and the the, the plan involves like you're not allowed to season any of your food. And you can only have twenty-five grams of blueberries for breakfast, and you have to have uh, protein at every meal and eat five to six times a day. And it was like, Jesus Christ! Like, what? how how is that normal?
2: This is the thing as well. If you've got a good um, like prep coach, you're in a much better position than if you've got a crappy PT giving you nutrition program and You're not competing. I mean, you're absolutely awful. And and I've had clients come to me who have. Lost tons of weight on these PTs nutrition program, but they now have all these huge food rules, and it's these huge food rules that people then become identified with that then leads to them having such disorder eating. Like not being able to eat carbohydrate and fat in the same meal is a food rule that is indicative of disorder eating. And these are the types of rules that people think are normal, and um, partly exacerbated by social media talking bullshit a lot of the time as well.
0: Mm-hmm. The insulin vary. Mm -hmm. so so let's um kind of dive down the your competitive history and kind of what are the biggest things you've learned from that that if you know that you could share with people now that are kind of going down that same route it would help them from a psychological and physiological perspective
2: um okay so i suppose if i like i went through it in a really bad way when I started and then I kind of morphed into something that was a little bit healthier um, the fact that healthy and I get a lot of clients that come to me that say I want to compete but you'll do it in a healthy way and that's kind of the first thing that you kind of have to go mm, there's a certain level it's not healthy, it's not healthy to diet yourself down to the point where you lose your period and you lose, you get all these hormones, but people think that because I talk about health that that there's some magic quality that means that you can do it in a healthy way. We've all known that there's, up to a certain point you can't. You can do it your best you can, but you can't. Um, so, a lot of people, as you guys know, like once you compete after that really prolonged period of starvation, basically, um, that's when we obviously start to see the disorder eating. And, and it's not, like I said, a competitive thing that like you will be aware of, like the Minnesota starvation experiment. So they basically starved men on like sixteen hundred calories for a while, and then they cut them in half. Um, and yeah, the men were basically starving. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of them. Um, I think.
0: Then they, then they what?
2: Oh, they, they had them in like no, they, no not the people.
0: They cut the
3: humans in <laughs> <enough>. half. <laughs>
2: what? <laughs> I mean that's like old school science. There. Holy shit! <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> and she said they cut them in
3: half. I was just about to Google that then. I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> no, no.
2: They had, they had, um, they had no. Their calories were cut in half to sixteen hundred calories. Okay, fine.
3: Months. Jesus Christ. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so sixteen hundred calories is not that bad, but they lost like a ton of weight. And these guys, like after six months of being on that many calories and being really like low body fat, they exhibited like signs of binge eating. Um one of them wrote one of them in that time wrote like a full recipe book because he was so obsessed with food and it's like these this was like years and years ago obviously this this study was done and it's like the one we use when we're talking about how metabolic damage doesn't exist it's that same study um but they they basically all got they, they started stealing food from each other because um, they were just so obsessed with food and it's like the typical nowadays what we see with athletes um, especially i mean traditionally i see it in bikini girls all the time who tag each other in food porn yeah
1: uh, and the whole
0: of post-show tweet treats before absolutely
2: they... that yeah i mean i did that on my first show and that's mistake number one um but it's a physiological and psychological adaptation to extreme dieting is this food obsession and it's that is an evidence-based fact that nobody talks about more so now we do obviously Yeah. Um, and t- so with our athletes, like that's something that we should almost expect to happen. It doesn't happen in everyone, but we should expect it to happen. So obviously we need to have strategies to, to manage that. Um, and then for some people that binge eating can develop into, you know, like binge purge. So what you see a lot with people who compete is binge purge on cardio. Bench powered, making themselves vomit on laxatives, and and some coaches we know are are ridiculous. And I've heard of coaches that make their clients take laxatives for like the week before a show. um Yeah, <laughs> um, it's like you've got nothing in you anyway. Um, so then these clients, these girls and potentially men, are taking laxatives before they compete, and they're on God knows how much cardio, and then they develop this food obsession. So that once they've competed, they're obsessed with food. They they binge on it um, and then they are already taking laxatives. So they think, I'll just have, take some more laxatives and they're already doing cardio. So they just kind of go, well, I'll just do cardio. Um, and then that's when you get these people doing like they finish their shows and, and you'll see them and they, they're still doing cardio, like excess, excessive cardio a couple of months down the line. And it's like that, that binge purge cycle, however you want to word it. That's what they're doing. They're just purging on cardio instead. Um, so, yeah, that's like all things that we can almost expect. I don't know what your experience is. If you get that with clients, I don't know.
3: 100%. I can relate to all those things. I can relate to all of them. I
0: would say I could, but I don't. I refuse to prep bikini girls and female competitors in general.
3: Mm. I think that one of the most interesting things you said at the start of that, uh, that uh, part then was about the fact that people needing to accept the fact that taking, especially the Especially female physiology, but taking the body to the extremes of body composition, although we can put everything in place to ensure that the, the health is impacted in the, kind of the least possible you know way achievable like at the end of the day if if somebody's moving to a point where they're at a very low level of body fat, they are going to be pretty messed up at the end of it there 's no other way around it um, and like I, I've had a lot of a lot of clients that have come to me from previous prep coaches where they've been on relatively extreme darting approaches or relatively extreme out- output approaches. And like the thing is, like you're in a sport where it's going to require a lot of extreme, extreme situations. And sometimes to get the body to a place that you need to do well in a sport like this, you're going to have to accept the fact that you're probably going to have to take a step back with your health. The only the only impact and the the only kind of coaching variable we have there is to make sure that you've got a strategy post show to bring your health markers back into the place they should be as quickly as possible. And I think from a coaching perspective, the coach is only reckless if they don't have that strategy post show to do that in the first place. But they may need to take that client to that point to to actually get them what they want, which is a pro card or you know a trophy or a British Finals Championship, whatever it might be um that's a really interesting concept that you brought up Yeah,
0: no you go yeah
2: and i was gonna say that is something that i struggle with as a prep coach that i say i've said to clients before if you want somebody that's going to do whatever it takes regardless of your health which there are some coaches that will do that and they will get their clients to condition regardless then i do i say i can't prep you for this because it's it's you you can like you said you can only do so much and we have these post strategies in place and you know some clients might have to keep a more flexible approach so that they're not you know they're not so obsessed with food and that's all we can do but there's a certain level especially for me as somebody that works a lot in terms of trying to make clients feel more compassionate Towards themselves and reduce their disorderly. in. I, I do struggle with that, and I yeah. do have that limit where I say I can't, I can't do what you need to do. So you need to go to somebody that will. And it yeah. breaks my heart when they do it because I can see, I watch them, and then I know what's happening. But that's that's the sport, and that's what some pe- and some people want a trophy or they want their pro card more than they want their health, and that's their values. That's that's fine.
0: Yeah, I think um, it, it reminds me of something I heard the other day about you know, the best competitors of in this sport being able to, you know, emotionally detach themselves from from the process of bodybuilding and prepping and stuff to the point where, you know, they can take and remove you know, it, it, affect them on that deep psychological level in the same way and they can maintain a pretty good relationship with food and all this stuff. But yeah, it reminds me of when you posted something the other day about how you helped a client but you know, get through some they you kinda of had a plateau and it involved reassessing their values
1: yeah
0: and and, and basically you know that I think that is a lot of what happens in these preps where people go through these preps and they get so focused on that feeling of looking lean and whatever it is and and they come out of the prep and you know for them to then progress and get healthy again they've got to actually reassess and change what they they value most, mm. and, most the time, and that kind of locks them in so what are the uh I mean what we, we, what do you have to say on that in terms of like strategies you implement there? And
2: Yeah. Know. So, it, yeah, I mean, that's like a really kind of, I guess it's more like a life coaching technique where you get clients to, to frequently reassess their values. And that's when I tend to get clients who come to me for off season and they say want to compete next year and then they don't, they change their mind because their values change. And um, it's really asking people um, what, like, what do you value right now? And if somebody's val somebody only values, external validation um trophies and that challenge then great like compete and that's fine but but again it's just having that discussion with clients say like what are you going to value when you're done because if you've you know you've lost your relationship because you've not had sex for six months and you're a horrible person like six months is a stretch let's just put that out there but you know what i'm saying you might do a lot of shows might do eight shows back, back. Um but if you've you know, you've lost your boyfriend <laughs> you've lost your friends because you you've taken it, you know, you've gone so far past the ground that you've got no other values in life, you need to have a strategy again in place for when you're finished, where yeah. your values are gonna lie. Because you're absolutely screwed if you've got no friends, no boyfriend, and your health is screwed and you're sat at home eating ten Pop tarts in a row, um, because you you're so obsessed with food. So it's like it's it's like if you're a good coach and you have a good coach, your coach will be saying to you, What what are your what are your goals for when you finish? And if your coach isn't doing that, then you've got to question your coach and say, Why am I not like why am I not thinking about it? Not not every coach is like it's obviously as holistic as I am, but just throwing it into a conversation saying, just have a think about what's going to be important to you when you finish yeah. is is really crucial because especially for first time competitors, they've got no clue what they're going into at all
0: and especially like first time competitors let's say who've never been that lean and then yeah. they get there and you can and that's why I, mean, I imagine there's cases where that doesn't work because people go oh yeah you know when I'm when I've done competing I'll I'll do this and I'll I'll have this value and, and you know blah, blah 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 and then they get there and they're like shit I like being lean like this and I haven't felt this before and although I feel shit I like how I look so suck it I'm gonna you know I'm gonna stay here and yeah.
1: then
0: to that or that, or they go, oh, yeah. I was going to do that one competition, but oh, there's another show three weeks away. So, yeah, I'll just, I'll just hold it for that. And then they get there, and there's oh, there's another one in two weeks. Oh, I'll just do that. And then it's like, okay, now you got a problem.
2: Yeah, and yeah, and you get that quite a lot, even with non-first timers, don't you? Um, yeah. But then again, it's values. Do you value? Do you want to look better next year? Because if you do, then you're going to have to stop. Um, and so, even if you only value competing and nothing else in life, which is Fine, if that's what you want to do, then again you just have to think about right, Well, next year, what do you need to do? Like, like you guys will talk about with your clients.
3: And typically, like when you look at from an athlete perspective, the the, the athletes that are doing the best long term are the ones that are competing the least as well, because they've got a strategy to get better and improve, and they're they're in the way they're approaching the the year. Whereas the ones that are doing show after show after show after show, a lot of that is you've just got to question why you're doing it in the first place and. Like a funny thing that I was talking about the other day was the fact that like, if we didn't have Instagram and we didn't have social media right now and we didn't have the, the kind of the picture board to have all the lights coming in, all this dopamine and all these like emotional responses, like would people be actually, would the masses be competing right now to this day? I don't think it would be half as half as popular as it is now. Definitely
2: not. Absolutely not. But then that's why I think that people have got responsibility to, to be truthful and authentic in, in what they're talking about especially like successful competitors which you know not a lot of them are that honest and although you can't make somebody be honest I do think that it's really beneficial when you've got honest coaches and honest competitors that are saying are managing people's expectations to an extent um, yep. but you can't force people to do that and of course it's everyone's responsibility to know that social media is a bit of a lie a lot of the time but
3: most of the time <laughs>
0: Yeah. most of the time it's full yeah. of bullshit yeah. You the right people,
1: yeah.
0: You <laughs> yeah speaking of which if you're not following media she's one of the good ones <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah I think it's like you, you mentioned like the best competitors are the ones that compete the least and I know it's the case on like the male circuit which and this, all this information by the way, applies to male competitors as well. There probably are probably people out there being like, ah, oh, female competitors sound so messed up. No, this whole disordered eating applies to you, too, guys.
1: Yeah, I've, I've, got,
0: I've got a lot of guys
3: who's yeah. a, a lot of issues with food.
0: Yeah, and then yeah. But also the physiological damage that you incur from doing this. Sort of yeah, thing. like yes, women have a menstrual cycle to contend with, but guys, we know that it damages you too. I think they did mm. like a study where they studied like a natural bodybuilder, and it took like a year post show to reestablish normal hormone levels, which is fucking crazy. But mm. look at like the guys in the top level, you know, like you know, you know the Phil Heath, the Sean Rodens, people like that. They compete like once a year and they get stick for it because everyone's like, "Oh my god, like why don't they do this show and that show and this show?" It's like, guys, if you're in a position where you can compete once a year and do bloody well, you're doing a very smart thing. Mm. <laughs> The amateurs can do that as well Like you don't need to and and you know if you do do show after show after show after show and you're an amateur and you've got to actually spend time coming away from competing to actually grow your physique you're actually not really doing yourself any favours because the longer you spend doing that sort of thing the harder it is for you to actually progress your physique so you know from a logical perspective it doesn't make sense either um very straight. Would you guys agree? 100%. Yeah.
2: Yeah, 100% too. I, I, I just think people get so addicted to the external validation. Yeah. And it, that comes down to when you prep and you lose everything else in your life that you you don't have anything else to focus on. And they get so addicted to that bloody likes or whatever it is. And it's like, nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares. And that's what I think people need to realise sometimes too. Like, yeah. your mum yeah. doesn't want you to do it. Your boyfriend doesn't want you to do it. Your girlfriend doesn't want you to do it. Your girlfriend probably prefers you when you're a little bit fatter. The only person that cares is yourself. Well, it's true. It's true. And so I think that people also, that's maybe harsh, but they get so obsessed in it that they think that it's really, that they have to keep going.
1: Mm.
2: But no.
3: Just one thing I wanted to speak about was um, obviously with your, more holistic approach. I think me me and Luke try and adopt a lot of those strategies, but obviously you are you are known for being very, very good at this. Like from a nutritional perspective, how would you approach setting up a client's nutrition when you wanna be as when you wanna be as as cautious as possible to not make any whether they've come from a poor relationship in the past, or whether they're fresh this dieting process and they just wanna get stuck into a goal of getting in shape or whatever it might be, like, what is your kind of thought process in regards to how I'm going to get them to control their energy balance, eat, eat an appropriate diet, et cetera?
2: So I think people think that I am like this anti-diet, anti-tracker person. Most of my clients track their macros. Most of them do. Mm. Um, I can get clients that just come to me for fat loss and they just track and it's fine. But I'd, what I've been doing a lot of more recently is having clients who come to me um, who have been pricked by somebody else and they're, they're a little bit off and they come and do like a, an off season with me and then they go back and prep with somebody that's going to kill them again um and that works quite well because it, it, i can start putting strategies in place for them and they can go into a prep in a healthier in a healthier starting place and, I, and that tends to be what i'm picking up more of now um but all of my clients will at least will start off tracking um i sorry that's my email um we'll start off tracking um, and then really just loosening the reins. So like we, like I was talking about on the live last night. I know you guys well, I know Luke's watching it. Um, is doing things like taking away, like some people at the end of prep are tracking vegetables and they're tracking everything at the end of prep, um, and they're so obsessed with it. So taking away, like loosening the reins on tracking, just to start off with. So taking all of that stuff out, getting used to having like different numbers. Um, really then again removing the tracking of like carbs and fats so they're just tracking protein and their calories um and then it's really like a phasic approach so some some i think it's really good for athletes to not track in their off season eventually yeah. um the only exception really is if they really struggle to eat enough i think obviously that can that doesn't happen with bikini girls in general and i tend to, i don't only tra- um, coach females but most of my clients are females um or if they massively under-eat, then you, you, intuitively, it's not going to be the way forward. Um, yeah. And then, like, once they've loosened the reins on tracking, I'll do things like, right, all you need to do is have, like, four servings of protein a day. When they know what a serving of protein is. So go and have four servings of protein a day. And then monitoring things, like, sometimes we remove weight, but monitoring, like, just pictures, measurements. And if they maintain or change the way that we want them to do it, then great, then they're not tracking anymore. Um Alongside of that, putting in behaviours, working on like their physiological hunger, we know when we diet, our physiological hunger and satiety signals are go to pot. We don't, know, we, we don't know how to listen to them anymore because we choose to ignore them. And it's very scary for people to then start honouring their hunger signals again because it doesn't feel right that they've spent six months saying that hunger is a good thing and now they have to go, now I have to eat to hunger and I don't know what to do. So. Mm-hmm. Put some strategies in place for like working on. We have like a hunger scale where they have to, you know, work, they do have different tasks around rating themselves during meals, how hungry they are, um, fullness scales, things like that, and being really mindful in what they're doing and mindful in their meals. I've had people say, uh, like, people will eat out of their Tupperware and they'll eat it because they've cooked it, but they don't know if they're hungry and they don't know if they're full, they just eat it because it's weighed out and it's in the Tupperware. Challenging them to say, right, if you don't want to eat what's in your Tupperware, just leave it. And even that alone is scary for people to do. Um, So it's just really challenging all the misconceptions, not misconceptions, but all the things that develop over diet. And it's like reversing all of those strategies. Mm -hmm. um, So that when they diet again, they know what hunger is, they know what fullness is. Um, Yeah.
3: So you'd almost approach it in kind of like a a systemized way, you're just giving them a little bit more control one step at a time.
2: Exactly. I've never had a client that just comes in and goes, and I go, right, we're just going to scrap. Tracking all together yeah um, and I'd say literally like 10% of my clients are intuitive eaters but a lot of them come to me and then they become intuitive eaters and then they leave because they don't there's nothing else that I can help them with mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. which is a perfect scenario for you as a coach because you've made them you've done your job
2: absolutely that absolutely that and then when I see them prepping again I'm like oh god
1: <laughs> <They'll> be <back>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <what?
2: laughs> but no it, it's that's you know that's ideal for me I want them to be able to eat like go on social, social occasions we know how scary that is for some people and I don't know what it's so much like in, in males you guys have more experience in that um, but with women that, who have been on prep, they, they feel like they can't even go out for dinner with their family and it's forcing them almost to do it and realising that that doesn't make a difference
1: mm-hmm. little
2: things like that that um, I'll set them a habit that says right you have to go to one social event this week, little things um, and it just challenges those misconceptions that's going to screw them over in some way
0: um, I think it's, it's still very bad among males. Something oh, yeah. I, with clients, is like like I, when we give, well, like when I do plans, I think Cal's the same as well. We we have like you know there'll be loose guidelines to each meal in terms of and there's gonna be a lot of people listening to this, especially some of the some of your mates who <laughs> will be like, oh, they're gonna be really regimented and stuff like that. It's like no, we actually approach stuff in a very similar way. It's always lifestyle, <laughs> yeah. everything like that. Like, I'll give someone a. A, you know, a plan with regards to nutrition and there'll be uh, the macros and the macros per meal and stuff like that and there'll be loose guidelines in terms of the types of things I want them to eat and the amount of veg and stuff like that and someone comes to me and goes I get got this this week, they were like oh mate I'm going out to dinner uh, what should I eat? And I was like have a read of what I put in that plan and it was like 40 grams of protein from a lean protein source, 20 grams of fat from a source I want, 50 grams of carbs from a starchy carb and two to three types of veg. I was like do you think you can make that work in an evening meal? And he was like yeah and I was like sweet that's 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 what you need to do and he was like oh sweet so I don't need to go through the menu and figure out I was like no you just need to eat in a responsible way like an adult and it was like you know there's a and I think that the you know the way you approach it sounds very similar and very cool and I think there's but it is scary I think it's crazy when people kind of I get you know you get like panicked messages from clients and they're like dude I'm going out for dinner what do I need to do it's like you need to go out and eat like an old
1: being.
2: But that's disordered eating. People that can't eat, people that have fear or guilt around doing something that they've got no control over, that is disordered eating. There's this huge like spectrum of it. And people can think that because of social media, because of old fashioned coaches, people think that that's normal to to prioritize, you know, bringing scales to dinner. That's not normal. And it, yeah, at certain times of prep, things like that you might have to do at certain times. But it's not something that you should be thinking about away from a show. It's but it is disordered eating and it's people just need to recognise that they need to challenge themselves a little bit on that.
3: Mm. One of the one of the interesting things that I see is obviously from a from a bodybuilding perspective and the lifestyles that we will live and clients will live with a bit of a very habitual in nature in terms of the way we live our lives. The way we, we thrive on routine, where that's routine across the day in terms of what we're doing with our time, whether that's our meal timings or whatever it might be. Once you take somebody out of that environment that they're very comfortable and they, they're very accurate with. So for example, somebody goes on holiday, that's when people completely lose their shit.
1: Mm. And
3: like I've seen like people that have anxiety about going away and this happens a lot as well. Um, and I used to have this to be fair until I stopped giving a fuck. But, um, Mm. Have anxiety about just moving out of your routine and being in unfamiliar environments. Where am I going to get my food? How am I going to get this and how am I going to get that in and it crushes people emotionally? Absolutely Mm -hmm. crushes people and it ruins the experience for them to actually go away and actually enjoy time and and recover and rest and just be fucking You know present with what they're doing and the people they're with
2: That's the thing you just lose like when you you like hit the nail on the head people just lose the ability to be present And how much you miss out on by not being present in what you're doing is ridiculous. Like, Mm. your life, and that's what I say to the girls all the time, this is your life. And you're you're sat there in this amazing country with your partner, whoever it is, and you're sitting, obsessing over the fact that you've just eaten a slice of pizza for your lunch. And I kind of set sometimes some challenges where I say, right, you've got 30 minutes to dwell on that after that meal. And then as soon as you hit 30 minutes, that's it any more thoughts in your head of that you have you have to just say no and you have to switch them off and um, and that comes down to like I talk a lot about and you'll know my social media well look you at least well like I talk a lot about self-compassion and something that we lack as competitors is self-compassion because it's the opposite of what we need to do for ourselves to compete and do well we have to be really hard on ourselves
1: yeah. um,
2: and so we get used to just being arseholes to ourselves. to Um, But one of the things, one of the underlying kind of concepts of self-compassion is being able to like switch things off in your head and be like, take a step back and be like, that's just shit that's going on in my head and I can just turn it off. So sometimes I will set clients that kind of rule or whenever they call themselves out for being overweight or whatever it is and make and make them log it so that they they are aware of how often they're having those thoughts um and it freaks them out because they realize that they're they're horrible to themselves and they're obsessing about food when they should be like you said on holiday or being present
0: what are you all i mean this is kind of jumping back to something you said in the beginning of that not a good speech um, the like how they're eating the foods what what kind of The things do you get people to focus on when they're actually eating foods in terms of like the stuff we get people to focus on I know you and I had a little debate about this (laughs) um, like chewing food food. like we're big proponents of getting people to chew their food more but I know you kind of can see that that in some cases can detract from being mindful
2: yeah I, I it's not that I'm against that like, we both have the same sort of idea that, you know, you should take a certain amount of time, at least, to get into a routine of taking maybe, I say 10 minutes, you say 15 minutes to eat meal. Um, I can't imagine getting anyone to take 15 minutes to, like, I don't know, eat a bikini-sized meal. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, maybe we have bigger meals, therefore, 15 minutes is a bit more legit. But things like slowing down when you eat is really useful. Having a distraction-free meal each day where you don't have your phone, you don't have other people, you don't have your work. Um, trying new different foods. We all know what our food tastes like. Like, if we're eating the same thing every single day, you know what one and a half kilos of blueberries taste like. Like, we know. So we kind of switch off in terms of, like, like just being attention to what they actually taste like. And then, yeah, you say you have to chew how many times?
0: I did it twenty to thirty times.
2: Yeah, and I mean that all that does is slows you down for eating. So I I don't think that it it, do, it adds necessarily any additional benefit. I personally think it detracts a little bit. Oh god! <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> of like
2: <laughs> <be> evidence. <laughs> <laughs> I I think if you're taking ten minutes to eat a meal, it's a normal sized meal. Um, then I think that counting your chews. For especially people who are already got these really structured food rules, I think that it can detract from the fact that they're just mm. slowing down and enjoying their dinner. Mm.
0: I get that. And actually I do when you said that, I was like, Oh shit, that's a good point. And I think but I think it's the same of when you would use a you know, tracking as a tool to get someone to being able to eat intuitively. Like I would say, I want you to count your shoes until it becomes habit. Um and then you, you, you get people to do it for a while and then it's oh sweet. Um, you know, by the time you uh, you know, three weeks later they're they're not having or even a week later they're like, Oh, I'm just chewing intuitively. <laughs> and um the uh but they they're like I don't know, you know, there are numerous health benefits associated <laughs> with chewing really. But I think it is um I th- I think in terms of getting people to take their time over there, and sure they're actually processing it efficiently. It is one of the best things you can do. Um, yeah, But I, I kind of it was a, a it was an interesting point you raised, and I thought I'd hate share it. Yeah, but in terms of like, do you do you you obviously so let's say you had people that were kind of in a working environment, do you encourage them to kind of move away from their workstation and yeah. do all that else?
2: Yeah, so again, it's that kind of phasic approach. So they might start off with saying, right, I might just say, right, I just want you to have one meal any time of the day without your phone and take 10 minutes. And then it will then it will be things like, right, I want you to have that meal, plus I want you to take your lunch away from your desk. And people are so reluctant to do that. It's like I've worked two full-time jobs for a year and a half. I know how busy you get, but you still can't have time to take your lunch. Unless you're like a doctor or something, I, I don't know. I don't know how that works. But in general, we can all take our lunch away from our desk. Mm. um so yeah i do i make them habits and they have to they like they, all my clients have like a portal but they have to tick off these habits so same as you i'm sure in your in your methods um and they have to say that they're doing it uh, and again it's just stops it eventually it becomes a habit um but yeah it's just that kind of reg- slightly regimented approach at least to begin with
0: yeah you mentioned uh, doctors like, i i i coach a gp and she um she's well she she's about to become a GP but she's got to do all her training and she's currently in a dementia ward in a hospital doing night shifts like all the the time and but she literally doesn't get a chance to eat she has to manage like so I think she was on a bed ward where they had like 300 beds she was the only person manning them and she literally just doesn't get any time to eat yeah and And
2: there are people like that that you just have to work around it
0: yeah, and it's, it's a challenge for me because I'm I'm used to being able to say like, no, you know, screw your routine, make the change And with her. It's like, no, I literally we've got to find a way around. Pretty-
2: yeah, I've got a client who's a doctor and she does lots of any like night shifts, and she we one of her goals was to try and get a routine, even though she's got a job that just doesn't allow routine. She's a competitor, mm-hmm. um, and she we found actually in the end that just basically fasting. So she'd have or just she just would fast for the whole of her shift. Mm. She didn't get too hungry because she was so busy, and then all of her other meals were like super mindful. Mm. Um, and she's like this mindful superstar person now. Um, and when she's off to pet. but mm. it can be done. And generally, these people do find it easier just not to eat. Mm.
0: That's the approach we take. The issue we get is when she has a really long shift during the day, and then she can't eat at all. It's like oh shit, um, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult, very difficult.
1: Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. So 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 like we've spoken about the intuitive eating thing and like i think because i watched your video the other day that you appeared on and and i think i think you mentioned it in that but it's like it appears as though the intuitive eating thing is something that you would value if you were i mean and obviously you can lose weight on intuitive
1: things,
0: like that, mm-hmm. but would you say that it's something people would implement more if their goal was i want to be healthy i want to enjoy life but i don't want to have any kind of body compositional related goals
2: yeah so like traditional intuitive eating like the 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 people that developed that as a kind of method it is anti-diet and one of the principles is reduce the diet mentality Um, and so when i talk about intuitive eating i'm kind of in real intuitive eaters and people that, that do it and write on it will hate the way that i do it because you have no food rules you're not allowed any food rules at all and so when i do intuitive eating i still say right four meals of protein in a day And I still have those kind of evidence-based nutrition guidelines underneath um, loosely. So it's not true intuitive eating as such. Um, But you can lose lose weight with it, um, but it's just not the kind of main outcome of it. But I just think that for competitors who are in their off-season, it's just such a great way of getting back in in line with your physiological signals. It's the best way to do it because if you're tracking, you you, you can't. still attached to the numbers
0: i'm glad you said physiological signals because that kind of made me think like it's it seems to be an exceptional tool for re-establishing both psychological and physiological health um but the uh, like what what are some of the other strategies that you you know let's say you have a bikini competitor coming out and you've got the the you know the goal of re-establishing their psychological health and we know how you, you go through that and kind of getting them to working them through that phasic approach what are the other things you would do to help get their physiology back in line in terms of how would you how would you approach the whole reverse diet and things like that
2: um all first all, i just want to say as well on the intuitive eating side of things is that there's loads of research that supports that the more intuitive if you are with your eating the better your self-esteem, the reduced um, incidence of any disordered eating habits, your improved body confidence, um, there's a lot of evidence to support it in terms of all of the things that we lack as competitors as it gets closer to a show. Intuitive eating is actually positively correlated with, um, so it's really useful for that. Um, but on the, t- on the side of like the physiological side of things, what I do with clients is it's very much dependent on the type of person they are. So obviously I tend to have, not all of my clients are binge eaters. So, but the ones that compete, they tend to struggle a little bit more with reverse dieting and reverse dieting can be a challenge for people that have that binge mentality because what happens is they're, they're so starving still. Well, starving, I use the colloquial, you know what I mean? Um, they're still so hungry and they all need maintenance calories and it's just, there's not enough to satiate them. Um, and with that binge mentality and food obsession, they're immediately binging. Um, and so sometimes I will always try a reverse diet with people initially. So put them back to like their new maintenance levels. Like I'm sure that they're similar to what you do. Um, put them back to their new maintenance. And if there's a, an indication of binging after maybe one or two weeks, then I'll just give them more food because it's still overall, you know, A lower calorie amount than it would be if they were binging if there's any any signs of them doing extra cardio when they've when I told them not to again I'll I'll bring their food up to try and minimize the hunger Um, doing things as well for binge eaters is what's really useful is um, what people tend to do is they think that just when they finish their show they've got higher macros and they're going to put in all their foods that they want inside their macros um, which is not really beneficial And, and doing things like increasing food volume so keeping prep food in just as you did before But just increasing the amount of that is really great in terms of satiety because it tends to be high-volume food anyway by that point. Um, But also kind of reducing cravings. I
0: imagine psychological health in terms of its familiar food as well
2: yeah and it's just a, a, a lot of the time that the really palatable food is is a binge trigger food and binge trigger foods do exist um, even in people that are not necessarily traditional binge eaters that, that optimal ratio of carbs and fat can be a, can be a trigger for a lot of people mm. um, so I never do cheat meals ever um, I'll do refeeds and stuff but I, the term cheat meal makes, makes my skin crawl um, so I don't do that but they do obviously have like they can go and socialize but it's not a structured cheat meal it's just mm. social um, so yeah it depends i tend to reverse people quite fast if they're sticking to it then it's much slower and like i said keep their foods the same and just increase the volume for a while and slowly reintroduce foods that they want
3: mm. you you'll know the individuals that you'll need to adopt a different approach with before it actually happens though will not
2: you yeah Yeah, and you you'll know the same. You'll have clients that you know are more likely to binge.
3: Yeah, yeah. One the one thing that I have found over the last probably year or so now I've been a little bit more like I used to be when I first started coaching. I used to be a lot uh, more rigid in the way I would structure nutrition with clients, but now I have obviously experience with more people, more personalities, more personas more character types like outer spaces obviously we use the approach that works best for the individual and i have no kind of um, dependency or or kind of alliance to any approach whatsoever but one thing that i will use in prep is if they have certain hyper foods that they really enjoy when it is time to introduce more calories or a spike in calories or a high day or a refeed like I'll I'll dip into some of those foods to actually just al- allow them to be familiar with them, because yeah. the more they restrict them and banish them, and then ten weeks time they eat a fucking jam donut and have twenty after. Like there was a guy that had two he- two high days last week. He's in prep at the moment, and one of his refeed meals was like a normal meal, and then he had like two magnums, ice creams, and two jam donuts or something, just because. Mm-hmm. Like keeping those foods familiar, although it sounds silly. Like after he's done that meal, he's like, right, the food's not going anywhere. I can still have the ability to eat them. Like, it's cool.
2: Yeah, I think that's so good as well because the again, it's that you release that food rule of that food is bad. Mm. That food's not bad because you've, you've had it and you're still dropping body fat, so it's a good food. So mm. it releases that. And then what happens when he's finished? Obviously, or these people are finished, is that they don't have the guilt that's attached to that food because it's not a bad food. And so one of the triggers of bingeing is the guilt. So yeah, yeah that's a really that's a really Good way of doing it. I tend, I'm very flexible in the in my clients anyway, so they they tend to not. I, I try and avoid any sort of rules in terms of bad foods anyway. Yeah. But yeah, that's sensible and a good way of doing it for sure.
1: Yeah.
3: Amazing.
0: I think I think it like yeah. I mean, the like the only time that I would say to someone I wouldn't eat X Y Z would be. If they, if I know it's for that individual, it causes like some sort of reaction <laughs> and my like actual like you know gastrointestinal issue or like bodily issue, whatever it is. But other than that, it's just like yeah, you can you can pretty much eat what you want, people. Yeah, it's but- also
2: really useful to, to do that. Sorry, it's also really useful to do that um, in terms of, and and I know that you don't do that because you've just said you don't. But like people that are basically only on the same foods for three to four months and their gut microbiome is so um adapted to what they're eating that they then develop all these intolerances and so keeping that variation in and, and keeping some of those foods in is really useful for that because so many i've met so many bikini athletes that come to me and they say i'm lactose intolerant i'm gluten intolerant i'm all of these things and within six months they're
1: fine mm.
2: um have had six months of just not getting to eat any of it um, but That's obviously more
3: of an awful thing I think one one thing that me and Luke have seen like firsthand and everyone will see this as well because they're going through the same clients, but when you have these like hypochondriac, super chronically stressed individuals through PrEP who have every digestive regularity under the sun and then they transition out of PrEP and we just smash them sort the of techniques and protocols to maximize stress management and improve their sleep. All of these GI regularities suddenly start to unravel themselves and disappear because the the, the the GI stress is being caused by you know poor regulation of the autonomic nervous system and poor, poor management of stress like people label certain foods as intolerant and inflammatory and I'm intolerant and you know I'm, I'm allergic to all this stuff but we've seen so many times it actually this comes down to looking at this from a bigger picture and actually just controlling stress and just lifestyle and, and what's happening from a
2: psychological state better yeah, the the stress thing is huge, and people just don't consider how how much stress, psychological and physiological, of course, that you're putting on your body for that whole time. Of course, it's of course that it's going to affect your gut. Of course it is, um, but people just don't really think about it or talk oh. about it.
0: And I'll clarify what I say because there's a lot of my clients that will probably like, what the fuck, Luke's drop like says I can eat whatever I want. No, <laughs> nutrient <laughs> dense foods, but. It, the issues arise when you start, you know, labelling certain foods as bad and creating these terrible relationships with them. So, yes, just. Yeah. Uh, I,
3: I just find general, generally, if you empower people from a nutritional perspective, they don't really want to eat those foods anyway because it makes them feel like shit in the first place. So, okay, like their right. their food selection will tidy up by default.
0: Yeah, you look at my diet and like I oh, I do the, enjoy yeah you know, the old treat when I go on holiday, like sometimes. You know, He's I'm
3: addicted like, to pick and mix.
1: Oh
0: there's worse things in my food. But the, but, but the, um, <laughs> um but um like I genuinely enjoy you know, people might look at my diet from an outside point you know, from the outside and be like, oh, that you must really just, you know have a short relationship with food you eat so clean on the time. It's like no, I literally can't get enough fruit.
2: Did you? <laughs> Did you just use the words I eat clean?
0: I don't think I said that, do I?
2: You I, you said he eats clean all the time, that's what you, you know. said.
0: Oh, God. <laughs> Oh god, that was a yeah that was a brain fart take that I was that, to was, that was that was that was me impersonating someone looking on <laughs> <the bed. laughs>
2: yeah.
0: but um but yeah you know what i mean so but the, not,
2: you're right yeah
0: i think and that's that's where intuitive eating wins when you get someone who intuitively eats really nice stuff and then they go oh yeah and i'll make room for certain things that you know conventionally might not be seen as that good for you but at the end of the day they're probably not that bad for you. And when you approach it in a pretty non-stressed out way, you're probably not going to get any issues from consuming it. Mm. Yeah, Which is why you get people that go to restaurants when, you know, they go on holiday and we get this and it has to do obviously with places in the world you're in and how that food is like processed and stuff. But, you know, people go on holiday and they notice they have less, you know, they eat gluten and they're like, Oh my God, I didn't flare up. And it's like, Is it because you're in a different part of the world or because you ate that gluten when you were super chilled out, you were, you know, socializing with friends and family and just generally having a good time and then suddenly you didn't react to it and then you come back into your stressed out kind of routine and someone hits you with gluten and you have this terrible reaction because it, you know, you've got that negative association with it? So it's very interesting. Very interesting. The brain is a powerful thing, people. Very powerful.
2: For some of us.
3: Uh, there's one thing i wanted to talk about as well was like me me and luke have both learned off um luke lehman from the muscle nerds and one term the muscle nerds uses like least mode time so something that's not associated with a stressor that you enjoy that's some form of hobby or habit that you can basically keep as part of your life and when we look at bodybuilders and people that are competing in physique-based sports especially if they're a personal trainer the importance of having some form of activity or hobby or passion which is outside of training, which is outside of them just working all the time, especially if they're an online coach and they're just stuck in front of the laptop all day. Like talk to us the I don't like the word balance because people tend to overuse it and kind of rely on it, but it is like having balance in your life and having some form of switch where you actually have time to actually de-stress and kind of clear your mind. Like the importance of having something in your life that is completely non related to bodybuilding that you can actually be passionate about.
2: Yeah. And it comes down to really immersing yourself and it's the same sort of benefits. That's got the same sort of benefits as, as meditation does. Yeah. Because it's so immersive and it's if it's something that's so immersive that it it forces you to be present in that and enjoy it, it's got that same underlying principle of just being present and, and what that does for your mindset is is huge. Um it you know it helps reduce anxiety, it helps reduce stress. Um and so obviously with a lot of my clients they do meditate and they do those things um but but a lot of them don't want to do it and it's and it's the same thing it's just under a different name where they have to go off and do something that they love once a week but i think one of the issues with that is that it's not it's not celebrated in the industry Mm. it's not celebrated to go off and like you said you don't like the word balance it's like well what nobody talks about the benefits of just going off and being normal mm. like i got a silly day for going on a night out and drinking tequila and i know it's because of the tequila but it's like that thing where it's like it's not celebrated to to go off and do something else and like you've just said how important it is but nobody talks about it
1: like, your,
0: your, go on i was gonna say what are your hobbies what, what's your like your go-to things that help with, with that balance
2: I, I meditate Obviously, I meditate every single day, twice a day sometimes, um, which is, it's, I don't know if you can call it a hobby, but it's a habit and it's very immersive. Um, and it hugely, hugely improves my self-compassion, my equanimity, so my ability to just stay chill. Like I'm a naturally really stressy person, but now I'm, I'm pretty chill in most stressful situations usually. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, that's my, that's my main thing. And obviously I go out quite a lot. And, uh, nowadays I go out quite a lot. And, drink
3: sometimes makes cheesecakes as well <laughs> <laughs> and i
2: love bacon for me is so immersive i love bacon because it's like yeah. science
0: food soul i love it yeah so bacon's like you know that what that in terms of that was one of the things when we were on muscle notes and luke Lehman, kind of at the beginning he was like i think it was at the beginning or maybe it was when he came on to talk about it but he went around and he was like what's your hobby and there was this you know room full of 50 coaches and Went around and he was like, "What's a hobby?" And everyone, like, I, even I at the time was like, "Training." And then mm. it's like, Tra- "Training, training, training." And then you get one person, and they're like, "I think I remember one guy who was like i play the oboe.'" <laughs> and, he, and everyone. Was like, <laughs> and then we got around and there was a girl who was like, "I pole dance." Like, right. It was high. like, right, like ninety-eight percent of the people in the room. Oh yeah, and their, their hobby was training, and he was like. Get yourself get yourself a new hobby because you've got to find something that's completely unrelated to your work. That, that you know, so people at least competitors are the saying you know, like, what do you do to unwind? And they're like, oh, I train. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, that's not really you know, that's what that's the job. So when you um, you know, baking's obviously yours. Slamming tequila. <laughs> um, like I'm I'm starting to learn the piano again. <laughs> I've just found that. Um, are you um uh you know I like watching t v shows and films like that's a, that's a hobby like cal what what would you say yours are other than walking i have got, got I've got a dog <laughs>
3: i just go i just go outdoors and walk Rosie that's my time yeah, yeah
0: so there's like things that are actually productive that completely take people's minds off what their making life mainly involves I think that's pretty good yeah that's
2: i went i I like to go walk in I went walking the other week i don't know if I told you this like and i I just left my phone and then I just walked. I just stopped somewhere randomly in North Wales and just walked for, like, three hours.
0: You left your phone. So how did you... Oh, I turned
2: it off. I turned it off. I put it on airplane mode and turned it off. (laughs) But, yeah, I'm not that stupid. I've got awful...
0: How do you you track your steps, Amelia? I don't do that
2: shit anymore. I'm intuitive. (laughs) 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 No Fitbit for me. (laughs) No,
0: that's... uh...
2: But, yeah, you're totally right. You're totally right
0: powerful stuff people and like like you, you tell people to do that so like I encourage people to you know like when we, we have like a lifestyle and sleep strategy sheet and one of the things on there is you know have a have an excellent salt bath a few times a week or even just a hot bath because we know that that's correlated with improving deep sleep and overall sleep quality and I will say to people I want you to in that bath either meditate or read a fictional book because reading a fictional book is a great way to encourage escapism you know getting taking your mind off everything you're thinking about with regards to your work and daily use and life stresses, crazy and it's so yeah. powerful
2: yeah and one thing on that as well like journaling is really useful and it's really useful for people who again people with disorder eating to, mm. to get the stuff that's in your head out of your head and you can do that by reading fiction by walking the dog by playing piano but journaling as well is fantastic just to get it out um, and then it's, then it's in a book and it's away from your thoughts um, it's just an, It's a really useful tool for people that, that suffer with those thoughts that lead them to binge. I,
3: I love the fact as well, like the stuff that you've just said, the the kind of the hesitancy that people that haven't done any of this stuff before to implement them. When you tell them to journal, they're like, "Oh, that's that's stupid. Like it's, it's hippie. Like I'm never going to do that." And then a year down the line, they're actually doing all that stuff, and like they've just improved the quality of their life significantly. Like the amount of times I've had clients that. Have been resilient to a lot of these protocols and techniques in terms of stress management and just being more present and more self aware and being more mindful. And then, like, they start to implement small things. And then, after a while, they're like the most fucking self aware, like, self love person in the world because they, they actually appreciate the importance of these little things.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. We put, we put that on our, on that same sheet, I reference. Mm-hmm. Like, you have the bit at the bottom and it's like, I want you to do a to do list and a, and a gratitude list every every night a gratitude log and it's um and i always say to people i don't know if you do this but on that sheet i've written do it with your non-dominant hand so you actually have to really internalize what you're thinking about some people that just scribble it down i say if you're right handed use your left hand and they literally you have to you you, if you try it you have to concentrate so damn hard on what you're writing that Mm -hmm. actually it helps a lot in terms of getting the thoughts actually to the front of your mind
2: gratitude is anything. Obviously, I do it on my story every single day, um, and I do it obviously away from my story as well. But it's again, it's an evidence-based technique. It's evidence-based. There was a study that was done, and it was like they showed people um, traditional like fit spot Instagram pictures. Um, and I think it was women, and they showed them all like fitsible pictures, um, and they asked them to rate their their self esteem and their body confidence and their body satisfaction um, and their compassion and Then they showed them them um, with compassion pictures before, so it was just like what would signify a compassion picture i don 't know what the pictures were showed them again, and they showed the same fitsible pictures, and their self compassion improved their body satisfaction improved, their happiness improved like and there's loads of studies that that support that so like i've said again i've done a post before where i say if you're sitting scrolling instagram for 15 minutes every 15 minutes you scroll you have to spend five minutes doing like daily gratitude and it's as an evidence-based technique to feel better about yourself and if people are not doing it and it's like what you choose to not feel good about yourself you know there are ways there are ways to make yourself feel good you're just not doing it
0: it's crazy like i get clients i did a client when I first told him that this was months ago, now absolutely loving it. Like the gratitude love. But he um he was like, oh, I don't I don't have anything I'm grateful for, and I was like, Jesus Christ! And I was like, yes, you do, and I was like, it can, it can be as small as you want it to be, and like and it, and it got for him. He literally had to go as small as like I like my hair, and I like my, you know I'm grateful for my hair, and like and I like really all cool things like that, and then it kind of snowballed into now he's actually picking pretty. Big things in his life that he's grateful for that he was grateful for before, but he didn't really recognise that.
1: Mm. Yeah,
0: um, and it, yes, yeah, yeah, this is a very powerful technique. Very powerful. Mm. Amazing. Um, we'll probably wrap it up there. That's been about an hour, right?
3: Yeah, just about an hour.
0: Yeah. So, thank you, Amelia. It was awesome.
3: Let, let's thank do you. one thing. Let's do the. Um, so on the topic of. Uh, like Ed and being mindful and being present. Like, who are the top three people that you've been inspired to kind of shape your craft and go on the path that you've gone on? And who are the top three people in your life, or the you know who are they in terms of this, that have kind of inspired your way and who you've learned off?
0: I was literally about to ask that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like mind.
2: Um. Good question. One of the best researchers is somebody called Jean Christella and she did a lot of work in like two thousand, two thousand ten 2010 onwards on mindful eating. She was one of the first researchers that I started looking at. So Jean Cristella. Um On the more mindfulness side of things, Eckhart Tolle is like, don't know if you, have you heard of Eckhart Tolle?
0: No, I haven't.
2: He's not a researcher. He's, um, I don't think, he's a, he's an author and he's,
0: yeah, that's why I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: he's fantastic. He has a book called The Power of Now, which is yes. I would recommend to everybody to read. It's fantastic. It's very much about um, being present and the ability to listen to the voices in your head and talks about the ego a lot. Really, really great. Um, so he's been a huge influence. Um, research-wise as well, there's not really anybody that does a lot of research into this um, other than Gene Christella. I'd say probably an, another author. Um, yeah. Renee Brown and she talks a lot about vulnerability and, and shame and those are things that are really prominent in people with disordered eating, this huge shame that's attached to it and um, she talks a lot about like the two the biggest antidotes to shame are um, authenticity and, and vocalising your shame and approaching that with somebody that's got empathy so in terms of as being a, as being a coach being as empathetic as you possibly can and encouraging that authentic and an honest environment it's going to remove the shame that people have around their disordered eating um and then it helps you support it and get people out of it so she's an evidence uh, she's a phd in psychology i think and uh, but all of her research is in shame and it's she's fantastic really great again i recommend all of her books
1: mm-hmm.
0: well, as i say so on that note let's do because i know you're a bookworm let's mm-hmm. do top three books for people that want to like you know think about themselves in a different way or or any of this stuff
2: probably these people those people have just said it's a bit boring but um, um
0: specific books
2: okay so power of now the power of now Eckhart Tolle yeah. Rene Brown Rising Strong yeah, and what's the third one there's mm-hmm. one that's, there's one that's called um this is really spiritual and I don't think that people listen to this will like this one but it's called The Untethered Soul and it's it's Great! It's a, again, it's quite spiritual, but it's all about self compassion.
0: Sweet, and she, she she failed to mention Lord of the Rings, but that's obviously in there.
2: Um, well, not.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no, that's um, it was awesome, awesome to chat to you. And um, where can uh, where can people find you, follow you, get in contact with you?
2: Um, Instagram is the best. It's just yeah. Emilia Thompson PhD. Mm. Great forward.
0: And she just hit the big 40,000 followers.
1: Boom. I
2: did. did. It's cool because it just means that people care more, care less about bullshit these days, which I I, I like.
0: Uh, It's very nice. (laughs)
2: Right.
0: It is very true. uh, Thank you for coming on. That was awesome.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: People are going to find this one valuable. So all the capacities out there that think that this doesn't apply to them it applies to you <laughs> Take
2: it, on board. it definitely does
0: yeah thank you anyway we'll catch you next time i don't think we even need to do a disclaimer for this one because this was all uh no there was any medical advice given here mm-hmm. that's all right. but um you don't need yeah so you don't need to consult your gp before starting to love you <laughs> <laughs> but uh
1: but no cheers for coming cheers for listening and uh we'll catch you next time